0: Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger.
1: So welcome to episode 24 of Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep. So the theme for this month is going to be sleep economics. Moira? Moira? I'll have you understand why economics is important to sleep by the end of this episode, hopefully.
0: Good. I'm intrigued. Yeah, I I do know that it probably is, but I must admit I don't know much about it. It's not something that I've thought I would be using much at all in my sleep career, but very, very open to, um, to what we're going to be discussing. At
1: least part of it you're familiar with. So you've been involved with the Sleep Health Foundation and that report on costing, the mm. cost of inadequate sleep in Australia. So that part you're on familiar territory. Absolutely.
0: Certainly know that we do need to put things into dollar terms for the messaging to be direct and salient. Mm-hmm. That's what I know. So if that's what health economics or sleep economics is.
1: I'm all over it. And then I'll hopefully be able to convert you to behavioural economics as a way of getting people to have a greater likelihood of following positive health behaviours to Mm. get you across that economic principle as well.
0: Absolutely. Looking forward to that.
1: So, as we've been talking about, the theme for this episode is about sleep economics, and poor sleep is costly. As we'll talk about, there's been a recent report released in Australia showing that the cost of inadequate sleep is around $66 billion for the Australian economy. And some of that cost is in medical disorders, but some of it's also in accident risk and lost productivity. So what else has been happening this month, Moira?
0: Well, I haven't actually debriefed with you. or talked about our various conferences that you were in India and at that same time I was over in Auckland at the Australasian Sleep Association Annual Conference. And it was really good. It was actually, a, it was a lovely, lovely meeting and preceded, you know, there was the chronobiology meeting as well, mm-hmm. just before that on Waiheke Island, which is divine, absolutely amazing, an island just off Auckland. So both meetings had a great amount of excitement and goodwill and Camaraderie, and I think it's just I you know, just I just really enjoyed. It. I think it was a high high quality meeting, that's for sure. Yeah, the
1: program certainly looked like a great program. Mm. What were the highlights for you?
0: Well, the highlights were seeing a CBTI for busy health professionals being completely sold out, if you like, like people yeah. pouring out into the aisles and. You know, people couldn't get in, and you know, I was standing up the whole time as well. I couldn't get a seat. It was so that was really exciting. That was just a well, well presented little forum. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to break down what CBTI is for people who weren't psychologists, I guess, you know, people who might just want to quickly. uh, Directed, I guess, at the medical people mostly. I'd say so. That was really good. But the, one of the best highlights for me was the debate that we had. A, you know, we had an awesome debate between two teams of, of sleep professionals, sort of the, the quite senior people in the field. It wasn't just because you were involved in that <laughs> <right? laughs> No, well, I was. I was. I knew it'd be good, but I was a bit. I thought, you know, it'll be what it's going to be. And but I was pleasantly surprised. I was laughing so much that I had tears, and I actually had a sore stomach from it. Was very very funny. Mm-hmm. And informative too, like I, I was I was getting swayed towards the, the affirmative who were saying that, yes, we should be all wearing trackable, wearable, you know, portable devices to track our sleep. The group that won, the team that won was the, the group arguing that, no, we shouldn't use them yet. Based really on that, there just hasn't got, you know, they're just not at the point of having good enough clinical data, I guess, to make clinical decisions. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because the arguments could have been really about the others. It wasn't about clinical decisions anyway. Yeah. It was about people's the general public's perception of it all and, and what whether it's doing any harm or any good. So I think on balance, I think they're actually not doing any harm. They're mm-hmm. actually, if anything, just putting sleep in people's the forefront of people's minds. So that was good. So it was really, very funny. It was really great. What about you? What's um, What Tell me a bit about the Indian Conference.
1: Oh, So we had a great time. So the conference in India was the third international conference of the Southeast Asian Academy of Sleep Medicine. And that was in Jalanda, which is in Punjab, up near the Pakistan border. And it really well attended. So there's around 500 delegates, lots of really good discussion about sleep. Right. And for me, it's 10 years now. I've been traveling to India, looking at working on educating uh, doctors and helping set up services for mm. sleep medicine in India. 10 so, years. Yeah. So really okay. – Great to see that you know now come to fruition. Lots of people that have graduated from training programs we've been involved with that are now working as sleep specialists in their own countries and yeah. in their home cities. So yeah, really satisfying.
0: Fantastic. So it's mostly, would you say, most of the five hundred delegates were from within India? or was very, or was very international.
1: Yeah, the majority from within India, yeah. but others from other Asian countries, including Sri Lanka and Nepal and some yeah, other yeah. countries. So yeah, really good mix. Mm. And of course, I was looking at different cultures. So we'll talk in an upcoming episode about sleep in different cultures. But I got some nice material to, for the yes. episodes coming oh, up. Oh, good,
0: excellent.
1: You know how in um, Chinese culture we know about feng shui, and we've heard about feng yes. shui. So yes. in Hindu culture, there's Vastu Shastra, which is involved with what direction you sleep in. And ah. so I learned that it's good to sleep with your head to the south or the east, not to the north or the west.
0: Really. Yeah. And, and so, and that's really uh, generally well, highly regarded. It's Oof. the
1: type of thing that the Hindu mothers will tell their kids. Yeah. You know, it's a bit like you know we have these sort of motherhood statements yeah. that we just take as a truth. Yeah, it's like that type
0: yeah. of thing. Yeah, so they all do it, like your sleep physician colleagues. Perhaps. To be honest, I have. I didn't ask whether they actually do that. We discussed that, I guess, in the episode.
1: I must admit, when I got home, I checked out my own bed at home. (laughs) Yes. My my head's to the east at home, so all all is good.
0: My head's to the north. Oh dear.
1: (laughs) That must explain a few
0: things. (laughs)
1: So the theme for this month's episode is sleep economics. And so why economics? So as we talked about up front, if you're looking to get expenditure from government on really any problem, be it a healthcare problem or other type of problem, you've got to be able to communicate with government in terms of costs. Because in essence, what does government do? It allocates resources and sometimes it allocates it based on, you know, the squeakiest wheel gets oil. I'm a bit more rational and a bit more of a numbers guy. So I like the idealistic belief that if you can justify things with numbers, you'll get an appropriate allocation of funding. doesn't well, always work.
0: <laughs> There's only so much in that jar to go around.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we'll hear from David Hillman about a report that's been produced called the Sleep on the Job, which quantifies the costs of inadequate sleep in Australia. So David's head of the Department of Pulmonary Physiology and Sleep Medicine at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth, Western Australia. And he's been the past president of the Australasian Sleep Association and the founding chair of the Sleep Health Foundation. You work with him a lot, Moira, and I've worked with David on a number of things. And he's just fantastic and really great person to work with
0: he's great he's very very passionate he's definitely been the biggest you know the driver of these reports and this one as you said sleep on the job it's the third of its kind and as he'll talk about no doubt in the interview extraordinary extraordinary numbers in terms of the you know the, the cost of inadequate sleep in Australia
1: so congratulations on the sleep on the job report that's just such a fantastic report showing the costs of sleep disorders in Australia why is that sort of
2: report so important? Yeah, well, look, you know, when you think about it, the uh, Australian governments, when they've set national health priorities, they like to tick a few boxes, and um, high communal uh, illness and injury burden are a couple of the boxes, and these these are going to be associated with high societal and financial costs, and so it's really important to. Establish the financial cost of things and making an argument to government that they should sort of redivide their treasury to take the, the particular issue in, into account
1: To prepare that sort of report what's involved? What have you got to pull together to get that project done?
2: Yeah, well essentially, it's a, it's a real health economics uh, exercise and so At the basis of the report, it's a rather interesting methodology called population attributable fractions. So what you do is you work out the cost of a particular problem to the community overall, for example, heart disease, and you work out its prevalence. And if you know the prevalence of the the particular sleep issue you're dealing with, and you know the risk ratio that links the two things, you can work out the proportion of the costs of heart disease that belong to poor sleep. So we've done that for a whole range of issues related to sleep including uh, recognized issues associated with poor sleep including heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, workplace accidents and motor vehicle accidents figured out the, uh, the proportion of the, the total cost of all those things that belong to sleep and, so, and you come up with the sorts of numbers that have been generated in this report.
1: So what did the report actually show?
2: It shows some enormous costs really related to those problems along with uh, productivity losses associated with poor sleep. And so I I guess that there's no real surprise that that there would be a cost associated with all of these things. The big surprise is just how big those costs are. So that um, if you tied up all the costs of the community, uh, the financial costs, the actual real dollar costs of poor sleep due to sleep disorders and to poor sleep habits, then it comes to a total of $26 billion per year. If you then add to that the so-called non-financial costs of poor sleep, that is the Costs associated with loss of well being they are not actual dollar costs to the, to the economy, but you can put, assign a cost to them that 's an additional forty billion dollars a year. So the total bill, if you like, for the community of poor sleep is sixty six point three billion dollars a year, which is um, a rather large number yeah, and how does that compare to other disease areas are there sort of similar figures? Well, look, you know if you look at those uh, financial costs alone of twenty six point two billion dollars a year. That's one point, about 1.5% of gross domestic product. So that gives you a, an idea of the scale of the problem. And it was interesting talking to Deloitte's who, uh, Deloitte Access who did this report for us. That's one of the biggest single figures they've ever generated when they've looked at the, and they've done a lot of costing of health problems to the community.
1: And you did a similar report some years ago. How have things changed in the interim between those two reports?
2: our previous exercises have been really looking at the costs of sleep disorders alone, the big three being obstructive sleep apnea, insomnia and restless leg syndrome, and that's about a $5 billion uh, a year cost for the community and financial costs. This of course is uh, five times that cost, but it includes all those costs together with the costs of inadequate sleep from all its other causes from poor sleep habits, the challenges of shift work and all the challenges of daily life that uh, that um, sleep has to be squeezed into. And so it's, it's really, it's not that the costs of the sleep disorders themselves have changed. In fact, they're rather similar. They're about 5 to $6 billion uh, component of that $26 billion cost. There's really the cost of all those other problems. And I guess we decided to do that because Sleepiness is an, is now becoming a pervasive issue to our community and and recent uh, sleep surveys of these problems have demonstrated that, so that we have a really a, a problem that reaches beyond the health issues and it 's really the public education about sleep. I think sleep's under bigger pressure now than it ever has been through social media and other things and it 's time to give it a bit of a, a bit of a higher priority in our national uh, preventive health thinking.
1: And hopefully this report will help foster that. Was there anything in your results you didn't expect that came as a surprise? Uh,
2: not really. I think that uh, there were a few gratifying things there. Uh, for example, if you look amongst the productivity loss costs, there's a, there's a number there, one of the bigger numbers in the report, about uh, just under $7 billion a year, the cost of presenteeism. That's being at work, but not fully efficient and actually in digging that cost out it was quite interesting getting into the literature there's really a very good literature that relate, that demonstrate productivity losses associated with uh, with poor sleep so it's about a 3 to 4% loss in productivity just through poor sleep and of course there's other figures there there's interesting figures that came out from a, a sleep survey done earlier in the year Which demonstrated that um, that sleepy people were twice as likely to take a day off uh, work a year as non-sleepy people, and that Mm -hmm. adds, of course, adds to that productivity loss cost too. So if you you look at uh, across the Australian community, the average Australian worker takes six days leave a year. The sleepy Australian worker takes 12. And now you've done the report, what are you actually going to do with it? The report was launched in Canberra in Parliament House and the Minister of Health launched it. And one of the most impressive things about the launch was the fact that it was quite clear that he and his staff had read it because he spoke to the report off the cuff and he spoke to it in detail. So he he understands it. And furthermore, he made it quite clear he understood the importance of it. And um, so I think that where this is leading us probably to uh, get the, our national leadership to look uh, very closely at this and to take it on as a problem that the nation needs to solve. We've had a lot of success as a country, I think, in in previous preventive health campaigns. I mean, smoking being a particularly outstanding example of Australian success in that area. I think we're quite good at these sorts of things as a nation once we've seen the point of them. And I think sleep fits very well into that. Uh, uh, what the problem, I, I guess, in establishing good habits across the community, is for the community to have a shared view of what what good what sleep should look like. At the moment, um, we have pockets in the community who, who wear their sleep loss as a sort of badge of honour, and will uh, proudly boast about how little um, uh, sleep they got the previous night and how well they think they're functioning despite that. So rather than than a badge of honour, I think that uh, poor sleeve ought to be regarded as a badge of shame. It's Clearly, there's a big accident risk associated with it. Clearly, there's a big productivity list associated with it. Clearly, it's not good for your health. And if you actually try and put some dollars to that, that, as we've done, the figures are quite mind-boggling. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks, David.
0: Well, that was a great interview. Thanks for doing that, Dave. Obviously, you covered a lot of things in that. What, what's the summary for you or what's the, the, the take-home or your hopes, I guess, or around the stuff you discussed? Yeah,
1: for me, the take-home is the total dollar cost. So mm-hmm. $66 billion, it's a bit hard to know because you know we don't know what the total budget is, you know, lay people. Yeah. But if you express that as a percent of GDP, it's 4% of GDP.
2: Yeah.
1: And if you then compare that, that allows you to then compare that to other disorders. And lots of those other e- economic reports for other disorders we think are more common, like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, a whole range of other things don't actually come to that type of cost or that type of proportion of GDP. So for me, that's a really powerful sort of number to be able to advocate with. And so what I hope is that this report will hold us in good stead for a number of years to be able to work with government and work with lots of other bodies on the importance of sleep as a way of trying to prioritise sleep and make it a national health priority.
0: Absolutely that's the thing we need to it needs to catapult uh, you know our aims and objectives from the Sleep Health Foundation and all I mean everyone who's working in the sleep field everyone's aim is to to get it higher up on the politician's agenda and for us to have some good policies around it and perhaps even an inquiry. You know, into why are we so sleep deprived? What what, what can we do about it as as a, at a national level?
1: So to change tack, the second part of economics around sleep honour to talk about was behavioural economics. And part of the stimulus for that was the awarding of the Nobel Prize for Economics to Professor Richard Thaler from the University of Chicago. And that really recognised his work in behavioural economics as a way of trying to redesign systems to get people to take up positive behaviours. So to give you some context, one example of his work was a, an area was trying to get people to pay their car registration on yeah. time. Simple things we have to do. And so they redesigned the form with a photo of the car on your form. And they increase the speed at which people paid their registration and the proportion of people paying their registration just by redesigning the form. Wow. Another example is looking at a school cafeteria. So there's been some experiments done at school cafeterias where they serve food, like in the US where kids get lunches and things, and looking at redesigning where the different foods sit, you know, the order at which people walk past foods, which ones are at eye level, which ones are a bit lower. And you could influence the students either to make healthier choices or less healthy choices. depending on where it's at. Depending on where you put the food. The
0: chocolate bars at the checkout. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's a good one.
1: Exactly. So that's behavioural economics in practice, (laughs) is how could you design a system so that people tend to default to a more healthy choice or a more positive sort of outcome rather than leaving the system completely undesigned and leaving it to chance these behavioral economics principles as well as being used in the examples i talked about do cut across into health so i didn't interview richard taylor but i got a chance to interview jack stevens who's a clinical psychologist to be pleased to know moira and an associate professor in the department of pediatrics at ohio state university And he came to mind for me because he'd written a really nice review article in Sleep Medicine Reviews in 2015, looking at using behavioural economics principles to increase the uptake of things that we know work, cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia in adults and CPAP for obstructive sleep apnea, things that we know work, but are sometimes challenging for us to get people to take up those behaviours.
0: Oh, absolutely. So thanks,
3: Jack, for helping us out. What is behavioural economics? Behavioral economics is an interdisciplinary field that features strategies from psychology and economics and marketing to enhance individual decision-making. Behavioral economics often assumes that low-intensity interventions can be used successfully to promote behavioral change. Historically, a lot of the focus of behavioral economics has been on consumer or financial decisions. So for example, what can be done to encourage employees to voluntarily save for retirement? Or what can be done to encourage homeowners to cut back on their energy usage so they can save on their utility bills? But over the last decade, behavior economics is getting more traction within the healthcare field. Probably BE is most closely associated with the popular press book Nudge. This book was written by Professor Cass Sunstein of Harvard Law School and Professor Richard Thaler of the University of Chicago Business School. And actually, Professor Thaler uh, just won the Nobel Prize in economics last month. So I'll often use, as a psychology-based approach, motivational
1: interviewing to get people to take up healthcare interventions, how does behavioral economics differ from motivational interviewing?
3: Well, first of all, I think behavioral economics and motivational interviewing both involve encouraging people to make changes using a non-confrontational approach. Mm -hmm. Um, I think behavioral economics involves varying the presentation of financial incentives or varying the presentation of information to achieve this goal. In contrast, motivational interviewing probably involves more rapport building with people in order to identify their own personal reasons for change as opposed to a clinician's or an expert's reasons for somebody to change. And certainly while motivational interviewing has considerable scientific support, it often requires a two-day training followed up by ongoing coaching in order for a clinician to master it behavioral economics probably requires less training in order to be able to be used successfully.
1: So if someone designs a behavioral economics program or sort of designs the incentives and the pathways, you're suggesting so a non-expert can then you know, deliver those choices or, or
3: use those techniques? Absolutely. H- how can behavioral economics be applied to healthcare? I think behavioral economics can be applied for both patients as well as providers. So regarding patients, behavior economics can be used to encourage them to follow through with the recommendations made by their healthcare providers. And regarding clinicians, I think behavior economics strategies can be used to encourage them to follow evidence-based practice guidelines. So just a couple quick examples of previous behavior economics work. Including getting patients uh, with diabetes to check their blood sugar levels more regularly uh-huh. and encouraging healthcare providers to not write inappropriate antibiotic prescriptions. I think, in terms of really applications of behavioral economics for healthcare, probably one of the leading entities that has really thought about this issue most fully is the. University of Pennsylvania's Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics. I think they've really done some of the the groundbreaking work in terms of trying to apply some of these strategies for healthcare purposes. So in the area of sleep, there's two examples of interventions that have a great evidence base behind them. You know, we
1: published a meta-analysis on CBT for insomnia, and it's got a good evidence base but take-up isn't great. And the other one is use of CPAP for obstructive sleep apnea. Again, good evidence for effectiveness, but, you know, adherence and take-up is often poor, how could I, in my practice, use behavioral economic principles to, or in the first instance, get people to take up CBT for insomnia?
3: Well, I think certainly more research needs to be conducted to see if BE strategies would uh, be effective for those objectives. But but let me give you a couple potential examples. Uh-huh. Behavior economics often assumes people don't make decisions that are in their long-run best interests. So when I think about behavioral economics and how it might be used for CBT for insomnia, We know that a lot of people may not correctly use an alarm to wake up at a predetermined time to try to keep a more consistent sleep schedule. Mm -hmm. So behavioral economics would suggest under that circumstance, what you want to do is you want to make it as difficult as possible for somebody to, quote, do the wrong thing. So practically speaking, what that would mean is that there are actually products out in the market. They're often known as clocky clocks that will actually move around someone's bedroom once the alarm goes off actually forcing somebody to get up out of bed to chase the movable alarm Uh in order to turn it off in the morning, making it more likely that the person's actually going to fully wake up and is going to adhere to that sleep restriction um, strategy. Uh Perhaps a second example would have to do with caffeine intake. I mean, we all know that caffeine is one of the most common, if not the most common substance used in the world. And often caffeine can interfere with ability to fall asleep. So often clinicians will think to themselves if they're going to ask a patient to do something challenging that they want to promote or propose, I should say, the easiest option possible, perhaps suggesting no caffeine after lunchtime. Behavioral economics, however, would suggest that sometimes you want to present a more extreme option, say suggesting stopping caffeine entirely along with that first option, in order to make that first option look more attractive by comparison. Uh So if you present two options at the same time, say restricting caffeine versus eliminating caffeine, that doesn't change the absolute benefits and drawbacks of restricting caffeine. However, the compromise choice of restricting caffeine may look more attractive, relatively speaking, when it's presented alongside that more extreme option of eliminating it entirely.
1: That's really interesting. If I was really wanting someone to do, for example, a four-session CBT program, should I present to them that really what I want them to do is a 12-week program that's far more intense and takes a lot more of their time? and offer them as a trade-off the
3: four-week program I really want them to do. It might help people take up CBT. I think where you'd have to be careful with that is that if you're gonna present patients with two different options, they really need to be two viable, credible options right? So the idea is not to, you know, mislead somebody into doing something that really is not in their long-term best interest. You want to make sure if you're going to be offering a couple options that you can say with good scientific and clinical credibility that either of these options might be effective for them. So that's why I like the caffeine example, because either stopping caffeine by lunchtime or eliminating entirely, there's probably some evidence out there to suggest that either one of those might help with sleep onset insomnia
1: thanks for the calibration so i won't offer such extreme examples there is though nice research in the cbt area that you know an eight session cbt works but brief behavioral interventions of one to two sessions also work so maybe i'll just you know bring those at two extremes that I've presented before in a bit, and it would still then have two viable options. Sure. Now, the other thing that I struggle with is we survey healthcare practitioners. I'll say, look, they know CBT should be first line for insomnia, and that reflects sort of evidence-based guidelines. But if we look at what actually happens, hypnotics get prescribed far and above CBT. So how could I use behavioral economics principles to change healthcare providers' behavior?
3: Well, in terms of encouraging providers to, say, recommend CBT or to not prescribe hypnotic medications for prolonged periods, I would suggest doing something similar to what Meeker and colleagues uh, did for inappropriate antibiotic prescribing. Mm -hmm. So in a study in which they published in last year's Journal of the American Medical Association, they found that two behavioral economic strategies were beneficial to change provider behavior. These two strategies were accountable justifications and peer comparisons. Accountable justifications involve asking clinicians to provide a rationale in an electronic health record in real time for a potentially questionable clinical decision. And really that relies upon social influences, the idea that a clinician would in essence have to know that another clinician might see his or her judgment or his or her call regarding something that may be of questionable value. Uh In terms of the second intervention, the peer comparisons, that involves giving a target clinician periodic feedback regarding how often he or she has made a questionable clinical decision within a certain time period relative to his or her peers. And again, that strategy also relies upon social influences. I think one of the basic conclusions behind behavioral economics is sometimes social influences can get people to behave in a more appropriate fashion, as opposed to solely giving them, say, the the scientific facts about something, if you will. So just to change tack, do you have any suggestions of how I could get people to take up CPAP? So
1: people with severe obstructive sleep apnea and I really think it's going to be in their best interests, particularly with regards to symptoms, to treat that with CPAP. How could I increase their
3: likelihood to take up that therapy? Behavioral economics would suggest that we all have limits in terms of our attention and our memory. So BE strategies often involve requiring vivid or memorable examples in order to encourage people to act upon information. So I think more practically what behavioral economics would suggest in this situation is perhaps showing a video clip of a patient who's had a recent overnight sleep study and actually showing them experiencing an arousal from an apnea or hypopnea. Mm -hmm. And I think if they could actually see something like that, that might actually lead to greater CPAP adherence Versus just reading a report or having a clinician orally go through the results of what happened during an overnight sleep study. In terms of another potential uh, way of increasing CPAP adherence, I would think very much upon, again, using the influences of social norms I mentioned just a minute ago in terms Mm -hmm. of changing clinician behavior. So simply emphasizing the number of past patients who have used and benefited from CPAP might foster adherence relative to just providing medical or clinical information on the need for the CPAP. Um, I think it's also really important to keep in mind that when you want to use this type of social influence approach, it's really important that clinicians emphasize the number of people who do use CPAP Mm -hmm. as opposed to Mm -hmm. emphasizing the number of people who don't use CPAP. Uh Framing really matters in this context. Thank you for those suggestions.
1: If we put in place behavioral economic strategies and sort of the first iteration
3: that we try doesn't really work, how do you then look at revising what you've done or sort of you know take two? So under those circumstances, I would think very much about using the motivational interviewing techniques you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, again, motivational interviewing uh, is it perhaps takes a little bit more time on the part of the clinician, but it really hopefully would give the clinician a better understanding of where the patient is coming from, and hopefully the clinician can really assume that the patient has some strongly held and perhaps even some very valid reasons for not following the recommendations and just learning more about where the patient is coming from might inform some strategies that the clinicians would try afterwards. But regardless, if somebody is using behavioral economics or motivational interviewing, I really encourage them not to nudge or not to inquire too forcefully. Uh-huh. We have to always remind ourselves that following healthcare providers' advice is recommended, it's not required. And coming on too strong may actually turn patients away from a clinician and may actually turn them away from just healthcare services more generally. So thanks very much for your help. Glad to do it. I very much enjoyed talking with you today.
0: Well, that's exciting work, actually. I'm very, very interested in that, and I'm wondering. I think we all need a behavioural economist to join our practices. Like, I, I would love to have one at you know at the at the sleep centres, and, and you'd probably love to. Oh, absolutely, have one. and
1: having listened to Jack, it you know, makes me think. You know, I must need a behavioural economist to come and sit next to me for a couple of days, mm. and look at the workflow or the way I sort of try and sort of have people follow certain behaviour and then go, you know what, you've designed it all wrong. If you want people to take it up, you should yeah. design the workflow in yes. this particular yes. way and yeah. have the defaults be these type of things yep. and then more people will actually take up the behaviour you wish them to yes. to take up.
0: because even with all my experience and all my, you know, there's various techniques and even with motivational interviewing, for instance, is something I feel like I can do pretty well, there's still a lot of people that you can't get through to or, or this it just doesn't They didn't have the uptake of what you're trying to sell to them. Not, not sell, it's the wrong word, but trying to persuade them because you know that if they did A, B and C, their sleep would get better. But it's really hard sometimes to get them to have uptake of that. And the,
1: the analogy, you know, in my own personal life, I know it would be better for me not quite to take in so many calories <laughs> and to exercise a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> but, but i don't necessarily do it and yeah. so you know bringing those sort of principles to somehow make the default be i don't take quite so many calories and i do exercise a bit more would be a positive health change so i must have to look at redesigning my day
0: <laughs> well absolutely i think it's a really valid point yeah. because it's probably because it's not knowledge is it it's not knowledge around the calories and all that you no, know exactly. that. i mean you're a medical professional
1: but so sleep's a similar thing yeah, it's we, very similar. We, we know what the the good things are to do, yeah. it's just a matter of trying to design systems that make it the default to follow those good mm-hmm. habits.
0: Oh, well, I think we're going to be talking more about that or knowing more about that and hopefully more widespread dissemination, I guess, in what we will do in the future.
1: Yeah, and I think you're right. So governments have now appointed departments of behavioral economics. So we've had one in Australia now since 2015 that's just starting to really gear up. Mm. And the colloquial sort of slang term for them is the nudge unit. Yes.
2: And that's yes, I've also heard about that. yeah. Yeah,
1: following the success of the nudge unit in the UK, which has just been really yeah. helpful in generating little nudges, Mm. sort of designing systems so that people are more likely to take a positive sort of behavioural approach. So people are looking for more information on what we've talked about. So you can get the full report of the Asleep on the Job report via the Sleep Health Foundation uh, website. And there's a couple of good resources about behavioural economics that I'll put the links for in the show notes. So Maura, what's your clinical tip of the month?
0: Based on everything we've discussed and that's been presented, I think it's a really important thing for all of us to think outside the square and to consult more widely outside of our own profession. And probably one of the things I love about the ASA conference that I just talked about how much you know I love going to it is that because it's not just psychologists like other conferences I go to. It's, it's you know you're alongside medical people and scientists and you know sleep scientists and mm. research people and have I forgotten you know a lot of people there's nurses there's everyone is there yep. and I think it's really important for us to, to consult outside of our own field and to hear other people's perspectives. So hearing about this you know this behavioural economist and the work that they do that is absolutely relevant to what what we're trying to do with our both on an individual level, like say with my clinical load, but also on the high level of the Sleep Health Foundation and our, our really broad aims, we absolutely need to be consulting someone like him. Yeah, so. absolutely.
1: No, nice tip. I really like that. And I think that's one of the things I've been learning as we do this podcast series and interview people from different disciplines is we learn a lot. They we sort do. of bring, bring us yeah. a lot and we can learn a lot of techniques when we sort of... Take that advice or take insights yeah. from other areas.
0: Promote cross fertilisation. I guess, is the summary of the clinical tip. Nice. So what about your pick of the month?
1: Well, it's got to be the book called Nudge. <laughs> it, it is of, course. One of It is one of my favourite books, a really good book, written by Professor Richard Thaler together mm. with Cass Sunstein. And it was published back in 2009, but it's still just as good as it ever was. And it's called Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth and Happiness. And it really is right. the definitive sort of book for the general public about behavioural economics and gives you really nice examples about ways of putting that into place and the underpinning principles for that. Fantastic. What about for you, more
0: One of my highlights in the last month, um, it was actually on the 1st of November on our Melbourne local ABC radio. Oh. It's available on the podcast, so I'll, we'll put a link to it. And it was something, it was just a, totally not nothing to do with sleep. In It was an interview with Timmy Barnes, you know, Australian rock and roller, but the, the woman who was co-hosting the conversation now, into Parsons, just opened up – I haven't followed up with her yet, but I will because she opened up the discussion with asking her co-host, John Vane, like, have you ever had a nap at work or something around – just started a dialogue around sleep – and the importance of sort of napping and resting. And, and it was just a really, it was my absolute highlight. Went for a while, like she's spoken for at least 10 minutes of the, about this. Sick of how hard we're working and what's going on, and we need to rest more. And we're all, everyone just thinks it's really cool to just work really long hours. And I'm all for hard work, but really, you know, we've got to rein it in people. And mm-hmm. I'm starting a revolution. So I thought, wow, we're, we're trying to, we've been starting a revolution for a while ourselves. So I thought we need people like that to start. You know, to speak really publicly around it. And and she wasn't prompted by the Sleep Power Foundation or anyone else. She was just speaking from the heart. So that's my highlight, and we'll put a link to that, and I'm going to follow up with her. Nice.
1: (laughs) So look out for the next episode of the Sleep Talk podcast, So that's going to be episode 25 and that's going to be on jet lag and a couple of really interesting interviews in that episode, including with a mathematician about how to use light to adjust for jet lag and from the head of product development at Qantas about their new product and how they're looking to manage jet lag in ultra-long-haul flights. So thanks for listening to this episode. Thanks again, Moira.
0: Thank you, Dave, and and thanks to everyone else. Please send us any suggestions if you have anything for future episodes. You can drop us an email at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And of course, if you do like the podcast, try and remember to do a review on iTunes. There's more than one there now. Did you know? I do. I <laughs> yeah. So you obviously can su- subscribe to <laughs> any podcast catcher, or via the Sleep Sleep Talk app.